Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the New York Times evidently didn't address the brutal 1982 murder of Chinese-American Vincent Chin until 1983 in response to ongoing protest centered in Detroit's Asian-American community about the killing and the lack of justice, at which point the Times ran a story with a lead claiming that when two men were quickly charged and prosecuted, the incident faded from many memories. Well, one, the process was hardly that tidy, and two, whose memories exactly? It's 40 years since Vincent Chin's murder, with a depressingly resonant context of anti-Asian hatred and scapegoating that corporate media, with their thinly-veiled drumbeat for war with China— over trade or COVID or presence in Africa, do little to dissuade. We'll talk with activist and author Helen Zia about the ongoing effort to remember Chin's murder by rededicating to the work of resisting not just anti-Chinese or anti-Asian ideas and actions, but also those separating us each from one another in the fight against those who, let's face it, hate all of us. Also on the show, we're told not to overanalyze, which seems to mean to analyze at all, the language of reporting and not to think too much about what's behind the scenes. It's official news from a neutral nowhere. But if the New York Times, for example, has enough intentionality to delete without acknowledgement declarative claims about rising crime— in an article about how concerns about crime are moving people to vote out reformist officials, like San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bodine, well, can we not imagine that they are likewise intentional about what they leave in? We'll talk about coverage of Chesa Bodine's recall, of which elite media are making much conventional wisdom hay, with Alec Karakatsanis, founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps, and author of the book Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group, FAIR. Vincent Chin was beaten to death in Detroit in June 1982 by two white auto workers who reportedly said it was because of him that they had lost their jobs. At the time, listeners may recall, Japan was being widely blamed for the collapse of the Detroit auto industry. Chin was Chinese-American. Elite media, as reflected by the New York Times, didn't seem to come round to the story until April 1983, with reporting on the protests emanating from Detroit's Asian-American community about the dismissive legal response to the murder. Chin's killers, Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz, were given probation and fines, with Wayne County Circuit Court Judge Charles Kaufman infamously saying they, quote, weren't the kind of people you send to jail. Close quote. It took protest for big media to attend to that legal perversity and the broader context of anti-Asian hatred and scapegoating. And it's civil rights activism that has been the legacy of Chin's death, 
40 years ago this week, activism of which our guest is a key part. Helen Zia is co-founder of American Citizens for Justice and author of Asian American Dreams, The Emergence of an American People, among other titles. She joins us now by phone from Detroit. Welcome back to Counterspin, Helen Zia. Well, it's my honor to be with you, Janine. I saw you speak recently in Detroit and say that Vincent Chin's horrific murder, its circumstances, and then the legal failures are all extremely important, but that that's not the whole story that's being acknowledged right now with this 40th remembrance and rededication. The story of Vincent Chin's killing is also about what came after, what grew from it. Can you talk a little about what that was and is? Oh, absolutely. It was a horrific killing. And not only that, but a continued miscarriage of justice where the justice system failed at every turn for a young man who was killed and attacked on the night of his bachelor party because of how he looked at a time of intense anti-Asian hate. And all of that was very important. It brought attention to the whole idea that Asian Americans are people, that we are humans, that we are Americans, and that we experience racism and discrimination. But that's not all that was important, because that event and the miscarriage of justice catalyzed a whole movement, a civil rights movement led by Asian Americans with Detroit, Michigan as the epicenter of that civil rights movement that reached all across America for Asian Americans and also had a huge impact on really democracy in this country and in many, many different ways. And it represented the solidarity of people from all walks of life. We were in Detroit, now a majority black city, back then was a majority black city, and we had incredible support from the black community, as well as Arab American community, multi-faith, multi-class, people from all walks of life, not only in Detroit, and then as it became a national movement, really sparked a discussion and a movement that took the moment of the killing of Vincent Chin and then the, the injustice that followed, but turned it into a civil rights movement, a human rights movement that has still an impact today. And that's why we're talking about this. It's to remember that moment but the legacy as well of people coming together in solidarity, you know, with the idea that an injury to one is an injury to all. And we have a, a, you know, a basic interest in joining together to ensure each other's safety, that we are part of a beloved community, that no community should live in fear of violence or hate. And this notion of uh, all our communities being so divided, can we ever be allies, let alone come together? And so that's what we're remembering. Let's not forget that actually we have been in solidarity and let's take the lessons of that and you know, move it forward to today because we need that desperately. When you say remembrance and rededication, which is what this event series is about, I really like that rededication part, which has to do with acknowledging that, as you say, an injury to one is an injury to all. And that's completely right. And that's why we are saying it's more than remembrance. It's about rededication. It's about taking the hard work that happened then and, you know, coming together in unity and in solidarity and building a movement. There's nothing 
simple about that. There's no kumbaya. It really takes people working hard together to bridge understandings and undo misunderstandings, break down stereotypes, and build a common understanding and a common bond between communities. And so when, as you say, communities are portrayed in the news or in TV or whatever and in movies that, you know, this is just that community's concern. It doesn't involve other people. Anti-Asian violence, well, hey, that's just Asians and we don't even know that they're Americans. <laughs> you know, we don't even know that they ever were on this continent for, you know, several hundred years. And so I think you're right. That's a way of sort of pigeonholing people and keeping us apart instead of looking at the, the true commonality. You know, if we talk about Vincent Chin or violence against Asian Americans, we also talk about Buffalo and, and we talk about Coeur d'Alene and how ideas of white supremacy and even active white supremacist groups, they lump us together. They don't see us as separate groups. Mm -hmm. They connect the dots in a very negative way. And so it's really incumbent on all thinking people and especially our media to be able to connect those dots too and not keep us separate. And it, it isn't, you know, often I think an unconscious way of saying, well, that's this group's problem, then the other group has this problem, then never the twain should meet. And unfortunately, that's part of what on the ground we have to overcome and do that education to say, no, actually, we're all in this together. And media has such an important role to play in that if we can break through that as well. Well, yeah, and I just wanted to add, it did seem from my looking into it that it took the protests for big media to attend to Chin's murder. But even then, some of what we saw was, here's this Times piece from September 10th, 1983, Asian Americans see growing bias, you know, and then the opening is Asian American leaders say they are alarmed by what they regard as rising discrimination against their people. So even there, there's kind of a Maybe it's not true. You know, maybe maybe it's just a perception. I wonder, have you seen shifts in media? You've obviously been working on this for a long time. Are there more openings now? Do you do you have to explain things less? Have you seen shifts in the way that media approach this set of issues? You know, there are shifts. There has been progress. But I, I have to say, we still have to do that basic Asian Americans 101 all the time. So back in 1982-83, Asian Americans were so invisibilized, you know, so minoritized that the whole country really had no concept of who Asian Americans are. So when we started first trying to raise this as an issue and have our press conferences and things like that, we were asked questions like, well, where did you all come from? Did you all just sort of land in America? more or less saying, are you all fresh off the boat? And we would have to say, well, many Asian Americans are immigrants, but actually we have been also on this continent for hundreds of years fighting in the Civil War, having records that go back to the 1500s in the Spanish archives of Mexico and, quote, New Spain of that time. And it was all about an education to say, you know what, we are not this foreign invader that just landed here. And that's what we had to do over and over again. You know, questions like, do you all speak English? And, and you would just have to say, what do you think I'm speaking with you now? 
and then why do you speak such good English? And I have to answer it more grammatically and say, well, I speak English well because I was born and raised here. And, and yes, we've progressed from that time. But unfortunately, even we see in this terrible pandemic, the dual pandemic of COVID and hate, you know, that includes the anti-Asian hate that's been going on. When those were first reported by people who were attacked in different incidents and they put it on social media, the first response overall was, wow, this happens to Asian Americans? Right. Well, who knew that? Yeah. You know, it was more surprise and eye-opening. And so that was, in a way, the news. And we see that not being challenged by media when, for example, in Atlanta, eight people were killed as a killer went in search of Asian Americans and killed six Asian women who were working. And the police immediately say, oh, this has nothing to do with race. And we don't see the pushback on that, querying that. It's sort of like it's almost accepted until now what makes a difference is the communities, the grassroots, the people on the ground saying, hey, what do you mean? This has everything to do with race. It has everything to do with gender and how Asian Americans are viewed. So the difference is that there's more of a voice. There's more of a community and organizations that actually can correct feelings or just where the ball is dropped and the questions that should be asked or followed up on aren't. So, so that's a difference. But maybe we have to explain a little less, but really, we have to explain over and over again. And to your point about this being seen as, well, it's just an Asian American issue. Part of the teaching constantly has to be, no, this is really connected. Hate crimes are connected. The Vincent Chin case had a big role to play in the Hate Crimes Protection Act that was signed in 2010 by President Obama that also included gender and sexual orientation and uh, disability. Well, the broadening of the concept of civil rights and who's protected really was argued in 1983 by Asian Americans to say that immigrants and Asian Americans should be protected by federal civil rights law, because that was not a given. There were a lot of racism deniers back then and even today. So that unfortunately, we do have to counter kind of the same misconceptions that existed then and today. The fight and the education never ends. We've been speaking with Helen Zia, co-founder of American Citizens for Justice. You can learn about the 40th Remembrance and Rededication at vincentchin.org. Thank you so much, Helen Zia, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. Thank you and FAIR for all the work you do. Politico, in a not-stupid piece on the ultimately successful recall campaign against San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bodine, referred offhandedly to Republicans across the country running on public safety. Quote, betting voters will punish Democrats for embracing a more lenient approach to sentencing and incarceration, close quote. 
in reality, the work of decarceration, as understood by people who've been studying and advocating and doing it for decades, involves deep engagement with communities and their human needs. It's nothing less than an intentional, accountable reprioritization of social resources. It is emphatically not doing less, which is what is implied by the term leniency. That kind of apparently lazy but very meaningful misrepresentation in a phrase writ larger is the media coverage of Chesa Bodine's recall, coverage that our guest has been monitoring and breaking down on Twitter and elsewhere. Alec Karakatsanis is founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps, a civil rights lawyer and public defender. He's author of the book, Usual Cruelty, the Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Alec Karakatsanis. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Everyone knows somebody who argues by only mentioning information that supports their point of view and obscuring rather than engaging any that doesn't, no matter how germane. It's an obnoxious, regressive way to have a conversation, but it's something worse when you pretend it's journalism. So I'd like to have you talk us through the problems with this June 8th New York Times article, but maybe just start by saying why you chose to take it up. We see crap crime coverage every day. Why did this stand out to you? I think elections are a particular moment of consciousness where people are paying attention more than they ordinarily would to political punditry, to commentary, to articles about policy. And so I think it was a particularly important moment you know, at 5 a.m. the morning after the election when the New York Times put this article online. And based on the placement that Times gave it in various of its, of its platforms, it's estimated by the sort of analytics tracking company Meltwater to have had the potential reach of 170 million people. So for me, it was a, a very prominent and very important article, which the New York Times pitched as its main takeaways from last Tuesday's elections. And so for that reason, I thought it was profoundly troubling that the Times created such a dishonest and dangerous narrative that what the voters were somehow telling us is that we need to double back down on mass incarceration policies that by every conceivable available metric have been an utter failure as a matter of keeping us safe and a disaster as a matter of human rights and basic human dignity. So how did this story do that? What were the sort of mechanisms in the story itself that that pushed that conclusion? If we had 10 hours, we couldn't cover them all, but I'll (laughs) do my best. I know. (laughs) Um, Virtually every word and clause in the article was an effort designed to concoct out of nowhere a false narrative that the election was a victory for tough-on-crime right-wing policies. So the first problem with the article is who is it relying on, who pitched it, how did it get there, and why, right? I think the second and most glaring problem that I lead with in my analysis of the article is that it bases its entire thesis that voters are sending a tough-on-crime message on just two races, the mayor's race in Los Angeles and the DA recall of San Francisco. In order to do that, the article had to ignore the vast majority of elections in California and across the country. And if you look at the other elections in California on these issues, 
progressive candidates trounced their opponents. The following races were completely and utterly ignored by the New York Times. The California attorney general's race, where a progressive reformer absolutely trounced the tough-on-crime opponent who everyone had been talking about and boosting prior to the election, she ended up coming in like fourth place. Tiny percentage of the vote trounced by the progressive California reforming attorney general. Same thing with Contra Costa, Alameda. If you look at the local races in Los Angeles, while the Times gives almost the entire article to boosting Rick Caruso, the Republican, former Republican billionaire, a real estate developer, as more results have come in in the days since the election, he actually is now losing. And Karen Bass is beating him, which is the entire thrust of the Times article. And if you look at the other local races, a citywide race for controller was a referendum on police budget. And the progressive candidate, Kenneth Mejia, trounced the longtime multiple incumbent city council person. And Mejia ran a transparent, clear, effective campaign about very popular things, investing in our safety through schools, housing, health care treatment, rather than more and more cash for surveillance technology and overtime. And, and these are very popular positions, it turns out. And the Times just ignored all of that, as well as a number of other L.A. city council races. I'll just pause there because I think I want people to understand that the entire framing of the article was based on two examples, one of which has now turned out to be utterly false in terms of like the local Los Angeles mayor's race, where the very basis of their narrative that this former Republican billionaire had won is now incorrect as more votes have been counted. But two, it all relied on ignoring these other races. Right. And that selective storytelling amounts to an important misrepresentation and then misdirection. And just to tease out one thing that you've said, the focus on elections often leads media to talk about people and individuals and to ignore the voters and the public. And what you have indicated repeatedly is that the policies, these policies about engaging the criminal justice system, about reprioritization, these are popular policies. And if the media were genuinely interested in being the people's voice, then even if a particular candidate lost, they would still be engaged with whether the particular policies and ideas were well-received and popular with the people. Absolutely. This is another key point. So if you look at the New York Times article, it claims that voters were motivated by what it called unchecked property crime in San Francisco. If you look at the actual data from San Francisco police themselves, property crime is significantly down under the tenure of the current DA. So is violent crime, way down in San Francisco. By every conceivable metric on which every local prosecutor and police budget and set of policies are measured, the tenure of this progressive DA was an enormous success. What the Times ignores is there was a huge $7 million effort led by Republican billionaires and the police union to tarnish the DA himself. And much of that was based on complete fabrications, total misinformation, lies, um, but a very, very active local media effort. Another tech venture capitalist, rich person, hired an entire media outlet and full-time reporter to just boost these right-wing lies in San Francisco itself, and the kind of resources that are hardly ever thrown at local journalism anymore. It was really incredible to watch. All of that was ignored by the Times. And instead, they tried to make it look like the voters were rejecting Boudin's policies. But if you actually look at the available polling that we have for voters in San Francisco, every single one of Boudin's major policy priorities 
were enormously popular with the voters. This is a really interesting story that the Times just completely ignores. This does not fit its narrative that voters don't want progressive policy. Here's a bit from the Times piece. Quote, California called for order. Racked by pandemic, littered with tent camps, frightened by smash-and-grab robberies and anti-Asian hate crimes, voters in two of the most progressive cities sent a message on Tuesday, restore stability, close quote. There is a breathtaking amount of work being done there. The definition of stability, poverty is a crime, sickness somehow is also a crime, Asian Americans want a carceral response, it's so freighted, and it's just their kind of, hey, here's our conclusion, take this away, you know. I think I want to highlight something that you said, which is incredibly important. Obviously, there's so much misinformation and propaganda in there. But one thing in particular stands out, and there was a few other moments in the Times coverage where it was a little bit more explicit about this, but essentially what the Times is saying is that there is a trade-off between what it calls order and stability mm-hmm. and civil rights or humane treatment of people in the criminal system, and that by being more, quote-unquote, lenient, we actually lead to less stability and order. This is the core flaw and what I call propaganda element at the center of so much New York Times reporting. And I think the reason is that there is a scientific consensus. What the Times is doing is like is violating that scientific consensus as if the Times were saying that climate change is not happening. There is a scientific consensus that the solution to problems of drug use and mental illness and homelessness and the low-level behavior and activity at the Times is sort of referring to when it talks about disorder. There's a consensus that you do not solve those problems through more police prosecutors and prisons. Those problems must be solved through investments in medical care and treatment and mental health treatment and affordable housing and places to live and investment in schools. One of the most robust findings in the scientific literature is that investment in early childhood education and schools and teachers actually reduces all forms of crime years into the future. We know all of these things. What the Times is trying to do is tell people you have to choose between respecting people's rights and treating them leniently and safety. And this is false. Because the only way we're going to get to real safety in our society, the way that every other comparably wealthy country has achieved much higher levels of safety and lower levels of violence, is by actually investing in the things that lead to safety. There's one other thing that I want to point out, which I think is very important. The Times suggests that the voters and the politicians who are pursuing progressive policies somehow don't care about safety. They say, quote, some voters are foremost demanding action on systemic disparities, while others are focused on their own sense of safety in their homes and neighborhoods, end quote. So this says that some people care about social justice, while other people care about safety. That is absurd. Does anyone seriously believe that the millions of poor people, Black people, young people, immigrants, teachers, nurses, public health experts, faith leaders, crime survivors, who've been fighting against systemic injustice and inequality in their community, they don't care about the safety also of their neighborhoods? That is just such a false dichotomy, and it's so prevalent in reporting from the New York Times over the last couple of years. We've been speaking with Alec Karakatsanis of Civil Rights Corps. The book, Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System, is out now from the new press. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much.
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.